Hello, my name is Forrest Coleman. I'm a postdoc in Stephen Smith's lab in the Department of Molecular and Cellular Physiology here at Stanford, and welcome to NeuroTalk, the interview series for Stanford University's weekly neuroscience seminar brought to you by Neurite West. This week, our guest is Kelsey Martin, Chair and Professor of Biological Chemistry and Professor of Psychiatry and Biobehavioral Sciences at the University of California, Los Angeles. Thanks for speaking with us today, Professor Martin. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. So could you first tell us a little bit about your background, where you grew up, and when you think you decided you wanted to become a scientist? Yeah, so I grew up in Seattle, Washington. My father is a scientist. So he's a, um, an MD, he's a pathologist who has been studying the biology and the genetics of aging at the University of Washington since like 1952, I think. Oh, wow. So I was definitely brought up in the midst of science. And I'll be perfectly honest that it was the last thing I wanted to do. Mm, yeah. My dad took a lot of sabbaticals. He took a year in Glasgow, Scotland, working with Ponte Corvo in genetics. He took a year in Paris when I was 10 and 11, working with Francois Jacob. Then he took a year in Cambridge. He took a little sabbatical in India. You know, so my family traveled a lot. Mm -hmm. And my mom was really interested in art. And I became a passionate reader and I loved literature. You know, in fact, I spent a lot of high school summers working in labs of my dad's colleagues, and my dad would always laugh about how all of the other students, you know, mostly undergraduates, but would come in with like, you know, Stryer or Leninger, and I would come in with a novel. <laughs> and I would like sneak away at lunchtime and go read somewhere. So then I went to Harvard for college and I thought, you know, maybe I would want to go to medical school. I was sort of interested because my family had traveled so much. I was really interested in kind of international public health. And I took as a freshman, I think biology and math, and I loved it. But then as a sophomore, I took chemistry and it was at Harvard, the cut course for pre-med. So I think it was like you know, there was a set number of A's, like 6% A's. Oh, wow. And they had, the year I took it, they had to hire police dogs for the, the organic chemistry labs because students were sabotaging each other's experiments. Oh, geez. And I, I really, I hated it. And I was very vulnerable to that. Yeah. And I remember really this, you know, very discreet moment sort of sitting in Harvard Yard and deciding this is not what I want to do in my life and deciding that I wasn't going to be pre-med and I wasn't going to do, you know, more science, that I was going to study literature. So I graduated in English and American literature language. I got really interested in sort of early 20th century poetry and 19th century American literature. But I was also, I, I remained very interested in kind of international issues. And this was in the late 70s, a time that I believe, although, you know, everybody thinks their generation is different, was a little bit more politically active. And I remember at the time, I really felt like, you know, most of the problems in the world, the global problems in equality were due to Western imperialism. And I lived in a communal house and we used to sit around and talk about this. And I decided that I was going to go to the Peace Corps and, you know, sort of try to do something that would have an impact on inequality in the world. I spoke French because I'd gone to school in France for a couple of years and I didn't want to teach English. I wanted to do something a little bit more practical. And so I made an arrangement that I would go to a French-speaking country if I could do something like agriculture or public health or foresting or something like that. And it was sent to Zaire, which is now the Democratic Republic of Congo, to do public health work. I think that was absolutely the turning point for me. That's when I decided I wanted to go back into biomedical research. And it really was because 
I spent two and a half years in a little village in the middle of the country that there was an old missionary uh, hospital that missionaries had set up that provided health care for a large rural zone. And every year there was a very large number of deaths from infectious disease. And in particular, there was something like 40% uh, mortality before the age of five. And a lot of it was due to infectious diseases that are cured by vaccination or prevented by vaccination. And so, you know, I remember really concretely this having every October, which they called the month of the flying termites, because that's when the termites came, Mm. there was a measles epidemic. A lot of kids would die from dehydration. And so we set up a vaccination program, which was really mostly community organizing, right? There's no electricity there. So it's being able to find usually bars, like community bars that have petrol refrigerators where you can store the vaccines and then doing community organizing to get people to bring their children to get vaccinated, to convince them that vaccination is safe. And so, you know, after doing that in this for a rural zone of 30,000 people, the next October, there's literally no measles. And so I really had this kind of conversion experience, I would say, where I realized that I knew a lot about literature and poetry and I was living in a place where people were starving. You know, I had grown up in kind of middle-class Seattle. I'd never seen anybody die in my life. And you live in a place where you see children dying in front of you and you know about Herman Melville, you feel a little bit empty-handed. And so, and and I have to be honest that my dad absolutely took advantage of that. So (laughs) this is pre-internet, pre, you know, there are no telephones, but you could get some mail. And so he sent me, I think it was the first edition of Lewin's Jeans. And he sent me these articles about John Enders, who had cultured the polio virus and how all that work led to the ability to make a vaccine against polio, because of course there's polio in Zaire, so there are a lot of people who had polio, we vaccinated against polio. I remember just feeling, kind of having this a pretty profound realization that biomedical research could have such a strong impact on the world and that I wanted to do that. So I actually had to come back from, I I got very sick there and was actually uh, had to be medically evacuated and have some surgeries on my foot. And after that, I had to go back and take a number of pre-med courses. And I thought at the time that I was more interested in doing sort of public health, medicine, global infectious disease work. You know, while I was doing that, I worked in a in a research lab looking at HIV transmission. And it was somebody uh, at Yale, George Miller, who's a really great mentor to me. And he was in the 80s. And there was a big question of whether there's horizontal transmission. So could children who were HIV infected go to public schools? Could they be adopted into foster families? So it started out as a really public health epidemiological project of looking for children who were HIV positive, and then testing all of their contacts to see if there was any transmission. But George Miller works in Epstein-Barr virus. This was kind of his separate little project. And he was really interested in the switch from viral latency to replication. So I got exposed to all these people just sitting in lab meetings talking about the switch of viral latency to replication, I started getting incredibly interested in it. I think I realized how creative science was. You know, and if I look back, you know, now my dad is 80, going to be 87 and he still works and he's totally passionate about what he does. But for me growing up, I think the what I saw is this person who would forget to come home for dinner because he was in the lab. And mm-hmm. so I didn't see the positive aspect of it as much, I would say. But working in, in George Miller's lab, I think I realized that I didn't just want to do medicine. I wanted to do 
research as well. And so that ended up kind of motivating me to do an MD PhD. So it's kind of a, a roundabout long journey, but so I actually didn't even start my MD PhD until I was 27. Wow. So you did your MD PhD at Yale and your mentor there was Ari Helenius. Am I pronouncing that right? Yeah, Ari Helenius. Yeah. And you stayed and you, you continued to study infectious disease and studied the mechanisms by which influenza regulate its entry and exit from the nucleus during infection. And since we're talking to a bunch of neuroscientists, I'm not going to make you go into detail about that. But <laughs> you did uh, end up doing a postdoc with Eric Kandel. So I'm curious what happened in the course of your MD-PhD that then attracted you to neuroscience and to work with Eric? Yeah, so there are two things. One is that, so Ari Helenius is really, you know, a, a huge contribution he made was he was a group of cell biologists who used viruses to really understand basic cell biology questions, right? They're beautiful tools for understanding how fusion happens, how endocytosis works, how the secretory pathway works, because the viruses use all of these cell biological processes for infection. So I worked very specifically on the question of nucleocytoplasmic trafficking. So part of that focus was asking about viruses, but part of the focus was really asking about intracellular trafficking mechanisms. And I, I kind of fell in love with cell biology and with the questions of of cell biology and about how all of these processes in different compartments of a cell are integrated to produce an, a function. Mm -hmm. You know, it just became really clear early on that that type of question reaches a, a, a level of sort of challenge in neurons because of their polarity. That's beautiful in my mind, right? Mm -hmm. So if you want to understand, for me, it was understanding how does influenza virus get from its site of entry? How does the nucleocapsid get into the nucleus? How does it then get out of the nucleus to bud at the plasma membrane in an epithelial cell? But, you know, at the same time, I was really aware of a lot of work looking at poliovirus or herpes virus and neurons where the questions of transport from really distal sites back to the nucleus is just a lot more interesting. Okay, yeah. so from a cell biological perspective, I think I felt inspired by neurons. From medical school, I went through all of my clinical clerkships. It was pretty stunning to me that in most fields, you know, whether it's in cardiology or in endocrinology, you know, that there's a pretty good, not complete, but a pretty good understanding of how the organ system works. Then you get to psychiatry in particular, even more than neurology. And you find that people are practicing clinical medicine, and yet there's just a huge gap in, our, in connecting a knowledge of the underlying biology of the brain to psychiatric illness and treatment of psychiatric illness. So I think, you know, the sort of more science part of me felt like, you know, my God, if there's something that is really needed to have an impact on clinical medicine or mankind, it's, it's going to be working in the nervous system and really understanding how the nervous system works. So those are kind of the two things. But I would have to add that, you know, for me, I love language, but I'm an English major because I loved reading books. I loved characters. I loved thinking about why do people behave the way they do, right? I, I was spent two and a half years in in Zaire, where there's enormous poverty, and yet it was, it's a very wealthy country. And it really seems like most of those problems really derive from sort of human behavior problems, you know, there. So I, I've always been deeply interested in why humans behave the way they do. And again, you know, psychiatry to me was the most interesting field of medicine from that perspective of trying to understand what it means to be humans. And I feel like neuroscience, it's the same thing. It's addressing really something 
very profound about what it means to be a human being. Yeah. So as you kind of highlighted briefly, one of the major problems that neurons have to solve is that the location of their molecular memory, the DNA in the nucleus and the sites of neural memories, the synapse, are separated by these large distances. This poses a number of logistical challenges for the cell. And you worked on an experiment while in Kandel's lab that pretty elegantly highlighted the problem by being able to modify a synaptic connection on one branch of an axon while leaving a synapse on another branch unaffected and looking at the, at the kinds of changes that you see in that situation. So for the benefit of our younger listeners, could you first describe how you managed to do that without channel rhodopsin and uh, <laughs> what, what you were able to learn about how the cell solves this problem? Yeah, so we did this in aplesia neurons. I think I started my lab thinking that about half of my lab would be working in aplesia as a model system. Now it's more like a fifth and the rest works in mouse. But when I was in Eric Kandel's lab, I used aplesia as a model system to ask this question. And it's because they're giant neurons and they're identifiable neurons. So you can set up a reduced circuit in a culture dish and you can literally control how those connections are made. So I could take a single sensory neuron that had a bifurcated branch, pair it with two motor neurons, and they're far apart, they're millimeter apart. Mm -hmm. The cell bodies are somewhere between 50 microns in diameter for the sensory neurons to 100, 150 for the motor neurons. And so it's not so hard, so we didn't use optogenetics, we just locally stimulated at synapses. Synapses are two to seven microns each in diameter, right? Yeah, and just so to be clear, I was, I was trying to make a joke. <laughs> Yeah, no, no, I do, no, but it is a joke, but it's also, I do think that there's something I think that we often get, like tools are so amazing in science, yeah, yeah. but you need tools and you need just logic. And sometimes the old fashioned ways of doing things are actually, you know, maybe better. I mean, it's a little bit like if you, you know, we do some similar types of experiments in mouse neurons and we do uncaging of glutamate, for example, you know, locally using light to activate specific sites. And lots of people have done things like that. And I do think, so the thing about optogenetics is it's so great for looking at a whole circuit. And the kinds of questions that we're asking is we're asking within a neuron, within a single neuron, you know, what happens when you stimulate this part of the dendrite or these synapses are, so you really do want to get that kind of spatially restricted. Yeah stimulation. So we literally came in with just a little perfusion electrode and, you know, I set bath blow in the dish and just puffed on serotonin to the connections that were made onto one of the connections and not onto the other. And and it, it was, I think the thing that facilitated it is that they're just big fat neurons. You have a millimeter in space between the two connections. So it's pretty easy to hit one set of connections and not the other. What are the basic observations that you made in this context? The first finding was if we stimulated one branch, we could induce a really long lasting form of synaptic strengthening at that branch, but not at the other branch. And it required transcription in the sensory neuron. And it also required translation of RNAs that were localized distally in the process. So, you know, for me, that actually has inspired a lot of the work that I've done independently. One of them is that, you know, it tells you right away that stimulating locally and distally is able to recruit transcription. Okay. And maybe that's not a big surprise because neurons are specialized for rapid communication using electrochemical signaling. But the kind of stimulation we're doing in aplesia where we're applying serotonin in the sensory neuron, we're not depolarizing the sensory neuron. We're acting through G-alpha-S coupled receptors. You're getting elevations in cyclic AMP. You're activating signaling molecules. So it really means that there has to be some 
pretty robust mechanism for, for relaying those soluble signaling molecules from a distal site back to the nucleus. And then it also taught us that there's an enormous amount of decentralization because we have RNAs that are localized and they're being translated sort of right on site in response to the local stimulation. Yeah. So this experiment, amongst many, kind of highlights this problem, which is now called synaptic, quote unquote, synaptic tagging. And you've studied aspects of this problem over the years. And I, I guess I'm curious at, at what point this problem was really crystallized for you as a scientist. Was it obviously an important question as soon as you saw the, these kinds of effects you just described of transcription? Or was there a particular experiment or result which, which highlighted it for you? Yeah, there was, so there was a very specific experiment that we did, which is that we found we had that preparation where we have the bifurcated sensory neuron. If we stimulated a long-term form of plasticity at one branch, and the way we do that is if we give five spaced applications of serotonin, that we know that that's enough to recruit transcription, right? Mm -hmm. We found that if we then come in with, you know, sort of a sub-threshold stimulus, so something that on its own won't, won't recruit a long-term form of plasticity, if we come in at the other branch, we can now get a long-term plasticity at that branch. So that told us a couple things. That told us that we were able to capture at that second synapse, some products of gene expression that were induced by the stronger stimulus, right? Mm -hmm. And so those experiments, and, and Fry and Morris did similar experiments in hippocampus, we found that there's a certain time window that you can give the subthreshold stimulus either before or after. So it really tells us that something's happening at that synapse that is marking it in some way or tagging it so that it then takes advantage of products of gene expression that are induced by a stronger stimulus. So I hesitate to ask you to summarize what you've learned about how neurons solve this problem, given the sheer bulk of work that you've done. But do you think you could kind of put it in a, in a framework for us? Yeah, well, I can tell you what my favorite idea is now. Sure. And I would say that I'm a, you know, one thing that I think that is true of most molecular cell biologists, and maybe has been a little bit less true of neuroscientists in my mind, is that I don't think that there's one way that this is, I think there are going to be multiple tags, for example, multiple molecular tags that happen. I, you know, I remember writing a review article for, I think it was Current Opinion or Trends in Neuroscience about synaptic tagging. And I remember the reviews, there were two reviews and one of them I knew had to be from a molecular cell biologist because they really liked it because we didn't say, oh, it's only going to be CAMK12 or it's only going to be this. It's, you know, we gave a whole bunch of different ways that one could potentially achieve synaptic tagging. And the other review <laughs> said, this is just terrible. They haven't said what the tag <laughs> in my, yeah. my response at the time was, I bet that's a neuroscientist yeah. looking for the tag. But, so, but I do have kind of a, you know, at least something that I think is really important. And a lot of our data has confirmed this idea for me. And that is that we know for synapse formation that you need both transcription and you need translation and that that translation can be local translation so that you get local changes in the proteome. But how are those two things related to one another? How are they integrated? And a lot of our work recently, and I'm going to show a lot of this when I, when I come to Stanford, shows that there are a lot of stimuli that will induce transcription. The RNAs that are transcribed in response to that, even local stimulation, are then delivered everywhere in the neuronal arbor. So they're not just sent back to the stimulated synapse. They're really delivered everywhere. So the opposite of tagging, in a way. Yeah, but 
Then there are local cues, and we've defined one of them. Again, I think there are going to be multiple that will then drive translation of that localized RNA. And, you know, we've done a lot of work in mouse where we've been doing looking after induction of LTP and hippocampal slices. And we've been taking advantage of transcriptome analysis. So we've been doing RNA sequencing after induction of LTP, but we've also been doing work where we're expressing tagged ribosomes and pyramidal neurons in the hippocampus and then pulling down the ribosomes and sequencing the associated RNAs. So we get two things. We get RNAs that are now on ribosomes it's a proxy, not a perfect proxy, but a proxy for being translated. And one of the things that we find is that we can sort of uncouple the induction of transcripts from the induction of translation. And that during LTP, we get much larger changes at the level of loading onto ribosomes than we do at the level of transcribing the RNA. So hopefully, you know, when I show all the actual data, this will be clear. But the yeah. way that we end up interpreting that is that, you know, what I really believe now is that there are stimuli, and I would put a lot of neuromodulatory stimuli in this category, that will induce transcription of a number of RNAs that can be delivered throughout the neurite. And what they do is they set the whole neuronal arbor in a state of readiness that it can respond to local cues by changing the local proteome. For protein synthesis, essentially, changing the, the proteome and thus the, the structure and the function of the, of the synapse. So I almost feel like, you know, if you take it to an extreme, I've become somebody who, you know, one of the things when I was a postdoc and I was doing these experiments on synaptic tagging, it really made me start to ask these questions about what's the unit of plasticity? Is it the, the cell or is it the synapse, right? And I think in a lot of neuroscience, we end up, because of the tools we have, we're thinking about cells, right? We express channel rhodopsin in a cell type. We do cell type-specific profiling. And we do it because that's the only thing that we can do right now. But if you think about it from a political perspective, where you have the federal government and then you have a lot of local governments, I've become much more of a believer that the brain works largely at the level of the local governments. The nucleus essentially provides all this machinery for the whole neuronal arbor. But that all of those, and I don't know, you know, it's going to be subsets of synapses, dendritic branches, that they essentially operate as independent units in a way by regulating to some extent the proteome and the structure and the function of that compartment. So I think we've been very fixated on neurons and cells and glia as opposed to just local communities kind of in the community, be the local community of, of the synapse. And there I would include glial contributions to those synapses. The act of signaling related to neural activity is driving intracellular signaling to stabilize the, the RNAs or do all manner of things that are happening specifically at synapses, which need to have LTP either induced or stabilized, and that without it, there isn't necessarily a molecular tag, or that there still is a molecular tag, but it's just not at the level of telling the uh, RNAs when to get off the microtubule network or something like that. Yeah. So one thing I would say that's important is I think there are going to be tags that will operate over different time domains. 
-hmm. So, for example, the Fry and Morris form of synaptic tagging does not require protein synthesis. What do you likely need protein synthesis for is to carry a, a form of plasticity over a, a longer time domain. I mean, for short-term memory, you don't need protein synthesis, right? right? For long-term, you do. And, you know, again, another advantage in aplesia, these are, because they're giant neurons, we can do sharp electrode recording, so we can impale the neurons day after day. We can record from them for 96 hours. You know, it's a lot easier than a patch clamp recording where you can keep the cell for maybe an hour. So if we really want to look at long-term plasticine, so we can begin to, to dissect out roles for, for protein synthesis in plasticity that lasts 24 hours versus 96 hours versus, right? Yeah. So I think that there are going to be some kinds of synaptic tags. Like I would think that CAMK2-alpha autophosphorylation, it's a kind of synaptic tag that probably operates over a 30-minute time window. Right. So I do think that there are going to be a lot of different, you know, that's one of the reasons why I say it's going to be more, it's not like there's going to be one tag. I think there are going to be ways that you're going to stabilize or delivery of glutamate receptors trafficking into the synapse. That's obviously another way that you're going to maintain synaptic strength over a certain time period. And you don't necessarily need protein synthesis for that, at least over a certain time domain. You know, and the, and the thing about whether there are RNAs that are really locally delivered, you know, that are targeted in certain ways, and ARC, I think, is the best, you know, the one that's used for thinking about the nervous system. In other asymmetric cells, it's absolutely clear that, you know, and in particular, if I think about like Drosophila uh, embryos, where there's a, there are very discrete patterns of localization of mRNAs and the protein localization reflects the mRNA localization. So it sort of suggests that though, you know, where the mRNA goes is it, it defines the fate of that subcellular compartment. I'd like to say you don't want neurons to work that way because you don't want to define the fate of some compartment of a neuron. You want that whole neuronal arbor to be ready to respond to stimuli. I think the RNA localization and, and local translation has a slightly different function. And the function, I, again, I would say is to allow for very decentralized control of gene expression. And I think that that's different for many other cell types where you have much more restricted control or, or centralized control of gene expression. So I wanted to switch gears towards the end a little bit. Bruce Albert, Shirley Tillman, Mark Kirshner, and Harold Varmus published an opinion piece in PNAS highlighting the growing disparity between the number of graduate students and postdocs and the number of available faculty positions and research funding. And they made a number of suggestions, including reducing the number of PhDs being produced and raising the salary of postdocs to remove the incentive to fund research with relatively cheap labor from postdocs over non-faculty senior scientists. And you are the coordinating PI of the UCLA Caltech MD-PhD training program and have won a number of awards for your mentoring of postdocs. So I'm curious what you thought, if you've read the piece, what you thought of it, and maybe what problems you feel are the most urgent with respect to the training of younger scientists. So I have read it. I haven't read it really carefully, but I have a number of thoughts about it. One of them is that I, and this is kind of a more idealistic and bigger, in a funny way, a, a more general problem. And that is that I am I guess discouraged and, and concerned about the fact that our entire nation, and you know, not just for students and postdocs, but really as a as a nation, that we've lost or we're you know losing our commitment and our value in discovery science. I think it was like ten years ago we were number one in the world in terms of funding for research and development. We've dropped down to number eight. You know, and so for me when I think about what makes a culture great, part of it is 
the belief in the importance of knowledge and discovery. And I feel like we've become a very utilitarian country that everything is has a, a sort of set value in terms of how it sustains that system rather than how it advances knowledge. So, you know, I would, in an ideal world, I would be much happier if there were more positions for scientists than there are currently in the United States. Okay, so that being said, it's clear that there are very limited positions, at least in academia. So I guess the way I would say that is I, you know, I would love to have lobbyists and spokespeople at the federal and state and local level who are really trying to re-inspire our country to invest in education and research and discovery. And I, you know, I have to say I feel sort of passionate about that being at a public university in California. Of course, I recognize, I, I worry about for my own students and my own postdocs where, what kinds of careers they're going to have. UCLA has, I think like many institutions, been, become very engaged in providing sort of alternative career training programs. There's a business of science program here that uh, I have two students who've, who've interned in. There are lots of opportunities for, for postdocs in particular to get a lot more training and teaching. I've heard discussions of trying to get programs where PhDs can learn more about administration, which I don't am not completely in agreement with. So I do think that diversifying the range of careers for students with PhDs is a really useful. I mean, it's just, you have to do it. Yeah. I regret that there's so little scientific literacy in our government. So I hope that many PhDs will go into policy. I, I don't know the exact numbers, but I think there's one PhD in the entire Congress. And so no wonder we're not happy with the decisions that are being made in terms of funding of research. I've had several students who have, have gone into industry and have very satisfying careers. So I think that's an obvious other approach. And I do think that I have, you know, I've noticed that um, in our department, there has been a sea change over the last 10 years in terms of the expectations, or not the expectations, but the judgment that faculty have about where their students end up. Yeah. You know, whereas yeah. before you were sort of praised if your trainees ended up as, as assistant professors <laughs> in universities, I think there's much more of a, um, a recognition of the value of having students end up in very diverse career pathways, right? Yeah. Which I think is, is a good thing. There were a couple of specific proposals that I liked in the Alberts piece. I do, and I remember it came out of an earlier proposal that uh, Shirley Tittleman and I think Sally Rock wrote from NIH, which was an evaluation of some of these issues for graduate education. I kind of like the idea that students be funded by training grants and by fellowships rather than by research grants. Because I do think that we're, they're in training. It, it's for education. I think it's wonderful that Stanford, that UCSF, and I hope at some point UCLA will raise a lot of donor money to support graduate education as something that's going to be important for our, our communities, right? Not just to replenish academia. But it's also important in order to, to set up the culture about what it is to be a graduate student, to properly value all of the training that you would need doesn't necessarily, isn't necessarily the, the fastest path to getting your paper out, but rather to set you up to, to, 
to do whatever it is that you really want to do after you get your PhD, whether it's academic science or not. Yeah, you know, and that is another reason because honestly, there are people who will complain here that, you know, they'll have a student who gets an internship at Amgen because they're thinking that they may want to go into industry. And so there are some programs where you can go for three months and work there. And, you know, if somebody's a PI goes, well, they're working in my lab. Yeah. <laughs> but if it's really viewed as this is training this individual to have a career, I think it's quite different. So, you know, I think that's happening. It's happening by necessity, unfortunately, right? Because of the funding situation, it's happening by necessity. I think we do have to decrease the number. It's not fair to train so many PhDs if there aren't jobs for them, right? right? It just isn't fair. The postdocs, I like the idea to have a career, staff scientists, essentially. There are a couple reasons that I like that. One, I think that's done a lot more in Europe, for example. And I think it was done more in an earlier generation. I mean, I know my dad had a couple of staff scientists who worked with him for 40 years and did amazing science. And I see a lot of students who are postdocs who love being in the lab and they love doing bench work, but they don't necessarily want to run their own lab. So that's a different career route, I would say. I also see that, for example, a lot of the technologies that are being developed require core facilities, right? Whether it's in imaging, whether it's in sequencing, whether it's in proteomics. And those core facilities are really going to, at least here at UCLA, the ones that work are the ones that are staffed by PhD level scientists who really work collaboratively with other labs to to effectively use technology. Mm -hmm. Normally at this time, I would ask you to give us a preview of what you plan to talk about, but I think we've got so much interesting stuff in this interview that I'm just gonna tell people that they should come to your talk. And in closing, we, we ask a series of shorter answer questions. So if you could go back in time and speak to yourself personally as a graduate student, what advice do you feel like you really needed to hear back then? Have some faith and don't let people discourage you. And um, this is a very specific one. If you want to have a family, have a family. Mm -hmm. Okay. <laughs> so I had children as an MDPG student and a postdoc. Have children. Just focus on what you love doing and really, as long as you love what you're doing, you'll be able to do it. But you, you worried about it a lot? Um, well, I was told things like I was ruining my career. <laughs> uh <-huh>. <laughs> <laughs> there are things like that. Um, and I think it's because people have a very short-term perspective on their lives. I think I would say, you know, your, your career is, is a is you have a you have to look at it with some perspective not just what you're accomplishing in the next week or in the next year but really where do you what are the questions that compel you and what do you want to do in the in the long term and what do you want to learn and what do you want to answer and don't be worried about every little step yeah and sort of listen to yourself so my second question, when you come to visit Stanford and the San Francisco area for your seminar, do you have uh, one thing that you plan to do outside of your talk? So my son is a graduate student at UCSF, ah. and he actually graduated last year from Stanford. So if there's one thing I'm going to do, it's <laughs> gonna, I'm going to go visit my son. <laughs> good, good. Well, thanks for speaking to us today, Dr. Martin. You're welcome. I look forward to coming up there. And thank you all for listening. We'll hope you join us next week when our guest will be Lee Hu Tsai, professor and director of the Pickhauer Institute for Learning and Memory at MIT. NeuroTalk is a production of Neurite West, and this episode was produced by Erica Senior, Mark Padalina, and myself. For more information about NeuroTalk and Neurite West, please visit our website at www.neuritewest.org.